Hello, valued podcast listener. This is Dave, your host of Storytime with Dave. This is Dave, your host. Thanks for joining me on this episode. There are a lot of things that I've been meaning to talk to you about, and I've been neglecting to do so. There's Sorry, there's so many things, you know, I think that what I'll focus on today, I'm actually just looking through the New York Times. This is all, my parents have a, are like subscribers to the New York Times and this is all they read. All they read are New York Times articles. Now, I shit on the New York Times sometimes, but they're not that bad, you know? They're just like, but it's not, but it's not great either. It's really not. And I saw an opinion article I wanted to talk to you guys about. Maybe I'll talk about that after what I'm going to cover first, which is conspiracy theories. Just a general thing about conspiracy theories. Also, I've had, I have a lot of new opinions. My mind has changed a lot in the last month or so about a lot of things. I think to an extent that it's more, um, I think it's more, I was kind of being an asshole for a while just for fun. That's my contrarian side. And I'll always have that, I think, no matter what. But I've toned it down a little bit. And I could do a whole episode about that too. But, you know, I'll talk about that when, when I can. But let's see. This is, my problem with the New York Times is that it's very, it's pretty blatantly leans left, pretty left, you know, more so than you'd want from something with the kind of reputation that the New York Times has, you know what I'm saying? And let's see, because I just saw this, I just wanted to mention this, because this is in the opinion section. The interesting thing about opinion articles is that You'll see some of the best articles in the opinion section, and then you'll see some articles that are so bad that you can't believe these people, that anyone publishes these people, let alone the New York Times for crying out loud. And there was a, there was one opinion article in particular I wanted to talk about, but let me just read you the headline of this from David Leonard. Look at what this headline is. It goes, impeachment is likely to hurt Trump, and he knows it. Wow, David, is that so? (laughs) This is amazing. How is that a headline? Impeachment is likely to hurt Trump, and he knows it. Would it? Is there a scenario in which impeachment would not hurt Trump? Is there? Is there? Does that scenario exist? And how would he not know it? Why did you have to add that part? And he knows it. Like what president was ever like? You know, this whole impeachment thing, I don't know if it's going to hurt me. Even if they go through with it and they do impeach me, I don't know if it's going to hurt me. I think every president would know that impeachment's bad. I don't think that's much of a stretch. So what was the thing, though? Um, Well, this is good. This is um, where the loony libs are self-destructing, not Trump. That's true. I mean, that's going on. We know that. Um, the Clinton legacy impeachment hurts the president. Yeah, dude. 
It does. It, it does? Does it really? Does impeachment really hurt the president? I find that unbelievable. Shit, I don't know though. Wait, what's the date today? Do you guys know? Oh, it's October 14th. So it is from today. So, so where was this article? I should have found the article before I started. I should have found the article before I started reading or no, no, no. Sorry. This is what happens when I'm scrolling through on the computer and then try and record at the same time. I can't do both things at the same time. I get confused. This is why I should have found the article before I started recording. Oh, here it is. It's called The Case Against Doing Nothing. Should I talk about this first and then I can talk? No, I want to. I'll talk about this second. The point of it will be, if you're interested, that <clears throat> especially now that I'm doing some of this freelance writing myself and realizing that um, just how little it takes to get this stuff out there published, even though I'm doing these bullshit articles that aren't opinion. To an extent, the opinion articles are even easier because it requires very little research a lot of the time. It's like it's just an opinion. I mean, you can have an informed opinion, but some of these people don't have particularly informed opinions. And you can especially tell that because they don't think things through very far at all. So they're only taking it like one step. Whereas if they took it, if they just sat there with that idea for like two and a half minutes, they'd be like, oh, here's a point of contention with that, for example. Like, Oh, here's a legitimate argument against what I'm saying here, you know? So the first, then then that's what I'll, I'll go to second. It's called The Case Against Doing Nothing. And it's about patting yourself on the back for contributing to helping the climate, which is something that really interests me. My, my opinion hasn't changed much on that front. But I don't even know if I ever really told you my opinion on that. Is something going on outside? Ugh. It sounds like someone's using a leaf blower or something. It's leaf blowing season, folks. Okay. Um, so here's the first thing I wanted to talk about. I mentioned to you guys that I am reading this book called Family of Secrets. And I'm now like 60% done with it. And it's it focuses on the Bush dynasty and political corruption and the CIA and all that sorts of all those sorts of things. And it got me thinking because a lot of stuff, okay? But it got me thinking about conspiracy theories in general and how they're perceived. And it's it's the perception of conspiracy theories could not be more beneficial to people who might be engaging in that kind of behavior. The way that people perceive conspiracy theories. People, I mean, it's just a word. Conspiracy theories is a phrase that evokes a lot of, um, a lot of different feelings toward it. Most of them are dismissive and flippant. Like as soon as you hear, they'll kind of lump them all in as one, let's say. Some of them are lumped in by design, like one would lead to the other conceivably two which follow that 
um, trend would be like, if you think JFK was an inside job, you probably also think that 9-11 was an inside job. And the 9-11 one's a little more um, complex than that. But to be honest with you, I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet because I know he talks about that because George W. Bush was president and that was like the biggest thing that happened during his presidency. Of course he talks about it. He's even mentioned, he's starting to elaborate upon the Saudi connections. Have you ever thought about that? A lot of this has led me to ask new questions that I never thought to ask before. That's really the basis, as far as I can tell, of a lot of conspiracy theories is you just start asking questions. That's all. Asking questions is like one of the best things you can do in formulating how you feel about things or whether or not something's bullshit. But I had never asked myself that question before. Um, Why is the U.S. so tight with Saudi Arabia? We have such tepid relationships with other Middle Eastern and Gulf countries More so Middle Eastern countries. We don't have great relationships with Middle Eastern countries. But we don't have amazing relationships with the Gulf countries. But for some reason, Saudi Arabia is like our best friend. Saudi Arabia is one of our closest allies, period. Like, it's up there with Britain and Israel. Why is that? I never asked that question. I always just, or when I did think about that, I was just like, well, you know, it's strategic, military, strategy, Well, you could say that about anything. Wouldn't it be strategic militarily to be allies with like Iraq or Iran? Wouldn't it be really strategically from a military perspective to be allies with like Russia or to be allies, you know, closer allies with any number of countries? And then why does Saudi Arabia? We're so close with Saudi Arabia. So it's just one of those things that I never thought about it before. And now I'm learning some of why we're so close. And then it turns out to be a little, well, I was going to say it turns out to be a little darker and a little more suspicious than you would think. But wouldn't you think it would be a little suspicious to begin with? I feel like I would. Just in exploring that at all. In exploring that topic. I would think, you know. It's not just like, oh, well, our our interests align so well. Because then why just them? Why is it just them? And they get so much more than, than anyone else, except for maybe Israel. Like we pamper Israel and we pamper Saudi Arabia, and that's about it. Everyone else, we're just, on, who are our allies, we're like, on, you know, we're on pretty good terms with them. I guess it depends on who's president and what's going on at the time. I think some of our allies are not so happy with us. I could touch upon that for one second, the Trump thing. Maybe I can inject some current events in this podcast a little bit more. But I don't really know if you care. I don't really know what you guys like in particular. You know, everyone says to make the podcast more specific. And that's probably right. But... I like talking about a lot of different stuff. And if I get it, make it too specific, I'd get bored and I probably wouldn't. Like if I only made the podcast about philosophy. Well, sometimes I'm like bored with philosophy and then I probably wouldn't end up making an episode for three weeks, you know? Or if I just made it about history. It's just like the podcast is just about whatever I feel like talking about that day. That's what it's about. Or whatever I've been learning about at the time or what's interesting to me. That's what it's about. And hopefully if you like me, 
You'll like the podcast, whatever it's about. Maybe you'll like some episodes more than others. But anyway, I was thinking about that because because I don't know, that's a tricky one. Like, you know how Trump just kind of bailed on the Kurds? I don't know if you guys are keeping up with this stuff at all. I barely am, especially now that I'm off Twitter. But it's hard not to notice that that's been going on, that Trump is withdrawing troops. That was my belly. I'm a hungry boy. Trump is withdrawing troops from Syria. When I first heard that, I was like, that's great. Good job. Like, let's give credit where it's due. He's getting our troops home. Isn't that a good thing? I have a really interesting point that I realized too. Let me explain this first though. So I was thinking, isn't that a good thing that Trump's removing? But obviously it's not that straightforward. And then people were criticizing him because people will criticize him for whatever he does, even if what he did was good. But then over the last month, I've become a lot more skeptical of both both camps. I was kind of in my annoyance and dislike for the left establishment, the Democrats and the progressives. I was kind of giving too much credit to the other side. And now I'm giving equally no credit to either side. And it's like you do all the work and you formulate what the basis for your argument is. And you do it thoroughly. And I'll examine both. And then I'll decide which side sounds better or if they both sound equally as bad. The, the, the thing that's interesting about this is it appears like Republicans are not happy that Trump is withdrawing the troops and Democrats are not happy. And so at first I'm thinking, okay, Republicans probably want the troops to be there. I'm not sure why they want the troops to be there. Probably to protect certain interests. They don't want Russia getting too much influence in the region. Things like that. And then the Democrats, why they're mad about it, I was confused about. Because I was like, I thought you guys were all about getting the troops out. But then if you look at the, the, the Democrats or just the left argument. Now, you know what? You'd have to say the Democrats because... If you were really just a leftist, then you'd probably be happy about this. But if you're a Democrat, then they're saying, so there are these people called the Kurds. Do you guys know who the Kurds are? The Kurds are a, um, what do you call it? Like an ethnic group in Syria, but they're also in Iraq. They're in a region and they basically, I'm not educated on this topic but for whatever reason when they drew up the maps and shit they didn't give the Kurds their own state but the Kurds probably they probably could have given the Kurds a state but the Kurds have enemies too like the Turks don't like the Kurds I'm not sure why that is either I'm sure it goes back a ways but basically, the Kurds have been strategic allies to us and have helped us a lot in defeating ISIS. And the nice thing about the Kurds, although I guess you can argue, some people would argue that it's not a nice thing. But as far as I can tell, the nice thing about the Kurds is that they really appreciate Western values. They're a bit more Westernized than a lot of people in that region. 
Whereas a lot of people in that region hate Western values and they hate what the West stands for. Although that's not, that might be the perception because a lot of the troops that we, like a lot of our troops when they were fighting in like Afghanistan and Iraq, which they still are, are fighting side by side with Iraqis and they're fighting side by side with Afghanis who want to take their country back and they want to instill some of these Western values and have a more free society. So you only get, you'll get the wrong idea or you might get the wrong perception. Like these people hate us. They hate America. Not, no, not really. Like some of them do. And they're the ones that are causing all the trouble, but plenty of them are like, we also hate those guys. We'd love if you guys would help. I mean, that's like, it's not like we're just there doing our own thing. Solo lone wolf military operations we're working we have to work with these people who can be a better ally than someone who knows the landscape we're just going out into the middle of the desert where we've never been before of course we're going to need assistance from those types of people so anyway the kurds they like us we've been helping them they've been helping us fighting isis and stuff they're very effective soldiers too from what i understand they're good you know, they're good in the field and shit. And now with us withdrawing, it's putting them in danger from the Turks. And the Turks are now, I'm not entirely sure. I probably, again, I probably should have read like at least a couple articles on this stuff. It's not particularly interesting to me. But I just found it interesting in the sense that my knee-jerk reaction to the event was like, good get our troops out of Syria. But then after seeing this, it seems like we've, we're betraying an ally who's helped us. And they probably deserve better than this. You know, this isn't to say that we have to give them the world and like give them a nation state like we did for Israel. You know, it's not like anyone's suggesting that or like we should go fight a war for them but at least to give them some protection because no one's going to no nation state like Turkey is going to mess with them. If we have military advisors there, it would be a really bad move geopolitically to it's like one thing. If Al Qaeda pisses off the United States, they're all scattered out. They're like a, they're like a worm in the sense that like, if you cut off the head, if you kill the leader, they kind of just, a new one will appear and you can't really, even if you like knock them down, they'll just get back up. They're impossible to deal with. They're really hard to deal with. But a nation state, it's like, it's different. Turkey, that is a state. They have borders. They have a military that wears uniforms and they have geopolitical interests and economic interests and America could really mess with them if it was discovered that Turkish soldiers were responsible for like American soldiers death deaths right it would be bad news so when we remove our troops from there then Turkey's like oh well things are a little different now because even though the Kurds have helped us and been our allies it's not like it's not like it would be nearly as big a deal in terms of like 
the United States reaction if Kurds were dying at the hands of Turks, it, it would be different. It's not like American soldiers dying at the hands of Turks. Very different. And, you know, Turkey is no stranger to um, ethnic cleansings or ethnically um, targeted <clears throat> atrocities, as you know the armenian genocide although if you go to turkey you can't even talk about the armenian genocide because as far as they're concerned it did not happen so that's uh that's where they're at with with the armenian genocide but for most people most people are in agreement that they did in fact in their they were it was during world war one and they said they had to move all these armenians they had to relocate them and then along the way, yeah, people are going to die. Okay, fine. But did a million people or two million maybe have to die? That seemed like a lot, Turkey. That seems like a lot. You know? That Was it necessary? I don't think so. Were you probably helping? Seems like it. Seems like you'd have to help. To get that many people. That, seems like it. Right? So, anyway... The last point that I will make on that is that you might say to yourself, bring the troops home. That sounds great. And I would say, yeah, it does. If it's a situation like Vietnam where people are being drafted and sent there against their will. In which case, yes, bring the troops home undoubtedly. And then in wars like Afghanistan and Iraq, bring the troops home as much as you can. Especially because conditions out there probably suck. It's like 120 degrees or whatever. But here's the interesting thing that I hadn't thought about before. There are some people who want to be there. It's undeniable. There are some soldiers who join the army. They want to go there. They want to be there. They want to be in harm's way. They want to be where the action is. These people exist. Of course they do. That's who all the war movies are about. Haven't you ever seen the movie The Hurt Locker? Watch that movie if you want an idea of what some of these people will be like. There's plenty of people like this. And so when you go bring the troops home, bring all the troops home. Some of those troops are like, no, I'm cool, man. I'm cool out here, actually. This is my job. This is what I like to do. And so in that case, it's like, okay, if there are troops that, if there are some troops that want to be there. And there's probably enough of them that we can have a presence with the Kurds and work side by side with the Kurds who we've been working with for a pretty long time and they haven't really they haven't really done anything bad to us. They've only been helpful. And it doesn't seem like one of those situations where we're picking, you know how like sometimes we pick the wrong side or we pick the wrong group and it ends up biting us in the ass? The Kurds don't seem like that type of group that would bite us in the ass. The Kurds seem like one of very few groups in that region who were actually like making the right decision to help them out. So if there are a few soldiers of ours, you know, like enough to have some advisors to be with the Kurds, then why wouldn't we? I don't see what the argument would be against that. Let them stay. The, you know, the soldiers that want to be there. I'd rather them be with the Kurds 
you know that's that seems cool so that's what i was thinking about i was like okay okay i'm kind of with the i'm kind of with the democrats on that to an extent even though partially part of it is still there that they just won't concede to trump on anything that's still there i'm not saying it's not there however on this particular issue i'm like i think that they're closer to what's right okay that's what i gotta say about that maybe i'll do the conspiracy theory video next i mean that video the episode because that could probably be its own episode because i'll talk about family of secrets that'll be the next episode that i do alone i know that i always do this but i think i'll still want to do that in a few days because i'll still be reading the book it'll still be on my mind and that's going to be mostly about just this idea of stereo or, or of um, not stereotypes of conspiracy theories being immediately brushed off as just conspiracy theories and just some of the psychology behind that that interests me we'll do that on my next solo episode what i'll finish with today is this little new york times article called the case against doing nothing because this is like i mean i'm telling you it's all my dad reads a lot only articles he only reads new york times articles that's it I'm not saying it's bad to read articles, but if the only thing you're reading is articles, like I give my dad books. I'm like, dude, you should check this out. You should read this. He he won't read books. He reads a lot. He probably get through the book quick, but he doesn't like books. He likes reading articles and opinion pieces. And I'm like, you know what? You're just not gaining that much. Think about how much more goes into a book than an article. An article might take a few days to write or even one day to write. Even if it does take a while, like a week or two, and you have that time to think about it, how much different are you as a human from one week to the next that your edits would be significant? That's one of the things about writing a book. If you're writing a book and it takes you two years, by the time you're finished initially, meaning you've written the last page and wrote the end, Now you have to go back through it and edit it. And then by this time, you're now two years removed from the intro, conceivably. So now you're coming at it from a whole different perspective. Now you're going to go through and edit it. The whole editing process might take months. There are books that take decades to write. There are books that people have written, took them 20 years to write, you know? It's, and then and then here, you can go read it. You don't have to read an article. You can read this book that someone worked their entire lives on. Of course, it's going to bring more value. Of course, it's more well thought out. Wouldn't you say? <clears throat> but I read this and I was thinking to myself, I got to get myself on the New York Times writing some opinion pieces because they really will let anyone write it. Like this guy, this lady, her name's Margaret Ranky, Rankel or something. I don't mean to be a dick. Maybe I do. But it's just not... It's not very good. I didn't find it very. Let me let me read some of it to you and I'll explain some of what I mean here when I'm like, it appears that there wasn't much. I don't know. I, I just I was not impressed. I was not at all impressed. It's called The Case Against Doing Nothing. Subtitle. 
taking a fatalist approach to climate change or anything else merely plays into conservative hands. Okay, so you know where this lady's coming from. She's she's coming from a liberal or progressive perspective, which can be fine. You know? I guess I'm trying to be more fair. I'm trying to be a fair boy. You know, I really am. I'm changing, okay? I'm trying to be a fair boy. It's hard. <laughs> okay. Nashville. If you're reading this, you're probably among the Americans who don't get their news from conservative echo chambers. So you've probably made some changes in your habits of late. Already in the first sentence, I'm thinking, no, they probably don't get their news from conservative echo chambers, but they they might get it from liberal echo chambers. Isn't that equally as bad? I don't know. I think it's equally as bad, to be honest. I think there are people who would say, well, the liberal echo chambers are better. And I just don't think that's true. I think if you become at least a little bit removed and then you go back and you more critically examine CNN, watching it at least. I complimented CNN on my last episode with Jesse because I saw an article that they had written about what's going on to the Muslims in China. And it was like real journalism. And I was like, oh, shit, CNN still has real journalists, not the ones on TV. Okay. The panelists and shit. I mean, go watch CNN, watch MSNBC, really examine it. And you go, oh, this is equally as bad as Fox. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. It's just the opposite, but it's the same. You know what I mean? So it's not like one echo chamber is better than the other. But this lady's saying you've probably made some changes in your habits. Chances are you feel pretty good about them. I bet you do. Patting yourself on the back. You won't save the planet all by yourself or make the country a more equitable place. But hey, doing something is always better than doing nothing. Well, I say this in jest, but doing nothing is better than is a lot better than doing a genocide, right? <laughs> Isn't that right, Margaret? Margaret would be like, well, at least do a little genocide. Don't just do nothing. And I would say, no, Margaret, do nothing. Let's not do the genocide at all, Margaret. Okay, is that cool with you, Marge? Let's do nothing. Instead of doing something, there are many times where doing something can be worse than doing nothing. So let's just point that out. That's a meaningless phrase. Doing something is always better than doing nothing. Because she writes always. You know, general rule of thumb, you want to avoid words like always or never. You want to avoid certainty, especially in an opinion piece where you're giving your opinion. You don't want to say, of course, this is this way. And it always is. And it always will be because you're just giving your opinion. So doing something is always better than doing nothing. No, Margaret, that is incorrect. I mean, that is objectively incorrect. Doing something is not always better than doing nothing. Sometimes doing nothing is better, especially, especially when you realize, especially if you were to realize later on that something is worse am i how do i describe this like maybe you might say 
oh, well, we should do this because it's for the best. Let's do this. Let's do this. And then only 50 years later, do you realize that it actually made everything worse, but you didn't notice at the time. So maybe you should have done nothing. You know, unintended consequences. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, so so this is just in the first paragraph that that's already a major that's what I'm, I mean, perhaps I'm being too critical, but I I'm thinking this is the New York Times. Surely. If not, Margaret shouldn't have shouldn't the editor have read that and went, ah, Marge, the, the last sentence of your intro, it's not. It could use a little work. But hey, doing something is always better than doing nothing. Let's let's work on that last sentence, Margaret. Because you're making a very broad generalized statement that's that's demonstrably false. And it would only require minimal investigation. This is like um you know, I listen to a lot of Tim Dillon, and I highly recommend that you do too. But he always talks about Gary Vee, and he kind of shits on Gary Vee, and I had never thought about it. But some of the stuff that Gary Vee says, in fact, a lot of the stuff that Gary Vee says, you're, it doesn't mean much if you investigate it. Just minimal investigation, right? And so here's an example of something like that. Doing something is always better than doing nothing. That's just, let's just minimally examine it. That's not true minimal examination with Gary. It's more like that things are meaningless where he'll just be like, dude, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta really mean it. If someone says something like that, like a motivational speaker, they're like, okay, you go, you go, you get after it, but this time you gotta really mean it, but it doesn't really, that doesn't mean anything. Especially if you meant it the first time. Like, what if you meant it the first time and you failed? You know what I'm saying? It was like that book I read, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. It was just full of all these things that were somewhat meaningless upon minimal investigation. And if all it takes is minimal investigation, then this worries me. And I know what you're thinking. If you've read any of my blog posts, you're probably thinking, well, Dave, there are things in your blog posts that upon minimal investigation, you should have realized were meaningless or false. And I would say, you're probably right. You know, maybe one day I'll go through my own. Maybe one day I'll go through my own writing a few months from now. And I'll critique and pick apart my own writing to show you that I am not above this. But I also don't have an editor. I just type it. I look through it, I do my own editing, and then I post it. This is the New York Times. It's not like Margaret can just get on her computer, sit down, type this out, and post it, and it's published in the New York Times. It has to go through the editor, okay? So the fact that someone like the New York, like the like an editor at the New York Times or the lead editor, you're thinking the lead opinion editor or however they do it, and I'm thinking this is... This is a first paragraph. You couldn't even get that. I mean, maybe by the last paragraph, you're a little bored. And so you missed something. But we're on the first paragraph. Okay. 
So let's see. Margaret continues. Doing something is always better than doing nothing. You're covering your leftovers with beeswax wraps instead of plastic. And you never drink from a straw anymore. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to be such a dick. But I guess she's describing someone right now who doesn't cover their leftovers with plastic. They cover it with beeswax and they never drink from a straw anymore. Well, what about a paper straw, Margaret? Or a metal straw? They can't drink from a straw at all? She should have said, and you never drink from a plastic straw anymore. You're skipping the roundup and pulling the weeds in your garden instead. She means roundup with a capital R, you know, the product that you spray on weeds and it kills them. I guess that's bad for the environment. I didn't know that, to be honest. You're careful about how you use pronouns, making no assumptions. See, now where did this come from? And what does that have to do with the environment? I thought this was about climate change. So she's going beeswax wraps, no straws, no roundup, pull the weeds yourself. Good for the environment. Oh, and you're being careful about using pronouns. You're being careful about how you use pronouns, making no assumptions. Let's talk about that for a second. You're being careful about how you use pronouns, making no assumptions. How about this? Minimal investigation. Aren't there scenarios in which not making an assumption about someone's gender can actually be insulting? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like you go up to someone and you go, hello, sir. Um, hello, human. And my, may I call you sir? Is it your pronoun he? Because then you're essentially saying like, hey, you look like you look like you might be transgender or you look like you might be non-binary. So I don't want to make any assumptions. This is what I'm saying. You know, when you call someone, <sighs> no, that would be a bad analogy, but so that's what I'm saying. Like sometimes it's actually rude to not make the assumption. And especially, especially don't you think to a transgender person, doesn't a transgender person probably want nothing more than to have their correct gender assumed? Like if someone transitioned from a male to a female, especially if they went through all everything, they went through the hormone therapy and they went through the surgeries. Don't you think they did that with the idea in mind that they wanted to be assumed to be a woman? But now here is this lady like, you're never assuming you know someone's gender. And I'm thinking, well, that's also not always true. I mean, I guess there are sometimes, there are some people who are like, they look like a guy, but they're non-binary or something. And these are the type of people who would get mad about you assuming their gender. But I have very, I mean, I told you, I'm trying to be nicer. I'm trying to be more open, more understanding. This is something I definitely have a lot less patience for. If someone presents, you know, very clearly to be one gender and you were to assume that that's their gender and they were to get mad at it. It's one thing to correct you, but it's a it's an entirely different thing to get mad about it. And then for you to be able to get in trouble is bad to me. 
It's very bad. I think it's very unfair. If someone looks like a man, and so you assume they're a man, and you turn out to be wrong, that person can correct you. That's fine. And you can try to be correct about it in the future, but you might slip up. The fact that someone can get mad at you from that shows to me a degree of ignorance on their part where they're just not being realistic because there have to be certain times. I mean, certainly they have to look, not certainly, I'm trying to be less certain, remember, but wouldn't you think when they look in the mirror, they think to themselves, okay, I guess I do look like a guy. I am non-binary and I stand by it. But I guess I do look like a guy, so maybe I will have a little more patience if people assume that I am one gender when I am, in fact, another. Isn't that... Like, shouldn't it be a two-way street? I feel like everyone's asking quote-unquote privileged people. And I say quote-unquote, maybe I shouldn't have said that because there are certain ways that... Um, like groups are privileged over other groups. I'm not denying that. But shouldn't it be at least a little bit of a two-way street? Like, can't we ask the non-binary, the LGBTQAIK9 community, can we ask them, okay, you want to be non-binary, you want to be a different gender, fine. And you want to have your own pronouns, Okay. But can you not get so mad at us if we fuck up? Can there be a little bit of like, you know, forgiveness, a little bit of flexibility? Could you be right? Isn't that, shouldn't that be? Isn't that just that? That's just. Am I crazy? Am I crazy here? Am I crazy? No one's asking them to do anything. It's The onus is always on us. And us, I don't even know who we are, really. I guess it's straight people. But, but I've also said in jest, especially online, in trolling, I've said that I'm non-binary and I've tried to tell people that. And they always assume that I'm lying or that I'm joking. But by their rules, I should be allowed to get as pissed off as they get, if not more, because they won't believe me. And I am joking, so they are right. But do you understand the point that I'm making? By their own logic, they're not allowed to be the ones to tell me that I'm lying about it. That's bigotry. Right? Maybe I'm not entirely right on that. I'm at 45 minutes already and I'm not even through this article. Let me just finish. Let me just finish this paragraph. Now, you know what? This this is enough. Well, let's see. She says, you're writing to your elected officials to demand affordable health care and sensible gun laws and humane immigration policy and full enfranchisement of your fellow citizens. You're giving as much as you can to advocacy organizations that work full-time to protect the environment, the poor, the victims of prejudice, prejudice, the rights of women. 
This is written like an SEO article. And who is this describing? To me, this is describing someone I really... I don't think they'd be my favorite person. I think this is... To me, it comes across as very self-important. These people will think very highly of themselves because of all that they're doing. And I'll just say one last point. Because she goes on to talk about how the point of the article is she's like, doing a little bit here and there actually does make a difference. And then brushing that off is the wrong thing to do. Okay. I think that, first of all, it's a little annoying to be encouraging this kind of stuff just because, simply because people think way too highly of themselves and they feel as though they're doing a lot more than what they're actually doing. That's one of the annoying parts. That's all. It's not the worst thing. It's not the end of the world. It's just a little annoying that people are able to feel like and then are are getting justified by articles like this that like yeah I really am changing the world in a little way in a small way I really am changing the world now I guess the premise of that is right and if enough people did it it would probably make a pretty big difference but to be honest with you and this is the way I really feel about it the world's not like we're not going to be saved if this climate crisis is coming which i'm skeptical about to be honest with you and i could talk about that in a different episode and people think i'm joking when i say that because it's something like my character would say but i am legitimately skeptical of the climate crisis you know but i can get into that and i know some people hear that and they're like oh i didn't realize you were fucking retarded well, they probably wouldn't say retarded, but you know what I'm saying? But it's just, it's, it's, it's nuanced. It's not like I'm a, I'm a flat out across the board denier. But I think it's blown out of proportion and people make a lot of money off of it. Anyway, the way I feel about it, the things that are going to change, it's, it's, she says no one person is going to change the world. That I think is wrong. I think it is going to be select individuals who end up changing the world as has always been the case mostly even when there's big uprisings when the smoke clears it's always one or a few people who are calling the shots it took a lot of people to have the war to overthrow the government but eventually it falls into the hands of a few or maybe one so there's a kid, and I really should get this kid's name because, like, that girl Greta gets all the gets all the love because she goes and gives passionate speeches. But there's this kid, and he made this thing, or I guess they're they're making like a little army of these like machines that like are automated, and then you just put them in the ocean. He puts them in the ocean by like the Great Garbage Patch or whatever it's called. And they collect the garbage and it gets sorted and shit. And like, it's this one kid. He's like 24, 23 or something. It's amazing. And based off of that technology, that's probably going to be what ends up 
clearing, like cleaning out the ocean. And so it was really like one person and then his team that he built. And then think about electric. I mean, we're just moving in the direction where like, if you don't have to get oil out of the ground, if you don't have to dig something up out of the ground to, to run and operate machinery, why would you? Then that's taking more work. So we are going to naturally get to a point where there's going to be either electric or something that we don't even know about yet. But there's going to be something in the future. And we're moving in that direction. There's going to be a point where there's not going to be gas cars on the road. Like we're going in that direction. It takes time. But you get individuals such as Elon Musk. Was there ever a cool electric car? And that can't be, you know, you can't discredit that too much or is discredit the right word, but that's important. Like everyone saw the Prius and they were like, Prius is for fags. You know, if you look at the Prius, you're like, yeah, I like, I like the idea of it, but I don't want to be a complete queer. But Elon Musk was like, no problem, guys. I'm going to make a car full electric. And it's like a fucking rocket ship. And I don't know if you guys have ever had the pleasure of driving a Tesla. And I do it at work. Especially the one with the big battery. It's called like the P100D or something. It It's amazing. You floor it and you're like teleport to where you want it. You teleport like a thousand feet. Like you could blink and you're there. It's amazing, dude. It's powerful. It's like King Dakar. Ka the launch. It's amazing. They're making a roadster that goes zero to 60 in 1.9 seconds. That's fucking cool. Okay. You, so he, this man single-handedly changed the perception of electric cars. He made electric cars cool. That's big time, man. That's big time. Okay. And his, his battery technology. So these are individual actions by, you know, the, I mean, there's individuals carrying our race forward and that's what's going to happen a lot of the time so you're going to have these articles like this that's like no you're going to make a difference and that's only going to be true for like 11 people or something and for those people it's going to be really true like they're going to make the biggest fucking difference they're going to change the world alone but most of us we're just going to reap the benefits and that's fine as we should because that's what that person wanted when they thought of their new idea to change the world, they wanted everyone to reap the benefits from it, mostly. So that's what I think is going to happen. And I'm not, I'm not out here driving a diesel truck. I'm not out here running a coal-burning factory, for example. You know, I don't really go out of my way to be really green, but I also don't out of, go out of my way to not be green. I'm pretty neutral. So leave me the fuck alone. That's what I got to say about that. Thank you for listening, everyone. I love you all. I'll talk to you next time. Storytime with Dave. Subscribe, share. Goodbye.